All right. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in our study of the book of Galatians. I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. And we're looking at uh, the topic, Saved to Stand Out, from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. And I invite you to read along with me, if you would, as we begin our reading there in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these like things. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, today we thank you for the glory of your word and for the power of your word. We thank you for its authority. We thank you that it is inspired and inerrant. We thank you that it is infallible. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word and in it we find everything that we need for life and godliness. Today, Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would breathe upon our hearts and minds, that we would receive the word and that it would be engrafted into our lives for the glory of your name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. We began looking at this passage of Scripture three weeks ago, and we were only able to make it through a portion of that Scripture. And so I want to take a look at this topic again this morning, and we're going to spend the first portion of our time together in a review of that material to kind of bring us up to speed so that we can finish this pericope together. And so Paul in this text begins with a straightforward command. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So he says, walk by the Spirit in verse 16. In verse 18, he puts it like this, be led by the Spirit. In verse 25, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. And so it becomes very apparent as we look at these laid side by side that the Spirit-filled life is not about ecstatic experiences. That the Spirit-filled life is not about emotional encounters of the third kind. That Spirit-filled living is living by the Spirit. It's walking by the Spirit. It is keeping in step with the Spirit. And so spirit-filled living is realized when we become Christians. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So it's very apparent that you receive the Spirit of God at salvation. No reception of the Spirit, no salvation. Because salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not about reformation, it's about transformation. It is the miracle of the new birth. Christianity is not simply a credo that you agree to. It is the miraculous birth of a new life. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is the miracle of the new birth when you receive the Spirit. And so keeping in step with the Spirit means that you are being led by the Spirit, that you know and you obey the Word of God. Now remember that we do not produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's not by you know, becoming more familiar with Christian tradition, by becoming, uh, you know, reaching down deep inside and somehow motivating yourself. I'm going to try a little bit harder to produce the fruit of the Spirit. No, none of that. The fruit of the Spirit is what? The fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that is producing the fruit in our lives. Our part is to keep in step with the Spirit. Our part is to live in submission to the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? By knowing and understanding and yielding to the Word of God. And thereby resisting the temptation to quench the Holy Spirit or to grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul begins with this straightforward command, walk by the Spirit. And then he sets up a sharp contrast. A sharp contrast. And we're going to be moving pretty quickly through this. But throughout Galatians to this point, Paul has been warning specifically against the Judaizers. He's been defending the doctrine of salvation, saying that it's through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, that salvation is not by personal merit, that salvation is not by good works, that salvation is not through ceremony or ritual. In fact, Trying to earn your salvation is impossible because that in itself would be a work of the flesh. It would be that you are not putting your trust in the Holy Spirit and in the grace of God. And then Paul makes this argument even clearer as he lays out the sharp contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. As we examine the works of the flesh, we see that the, these are, in fact, the kinds of works that the Judaizers were engaged in. Shelley, nice to see you this morning. Let's give a hand uh, to Shelley. Dennis Noble shared the word with us last week, and Shelley and he have been engaged in effective ministry for well over 40 years up in uh, Denver in uh, the inner city there. So we're blessed to have you with us today, and I know Lynn and... and uh, your mother, Anita, are glad to have you as well. Thank you for your sermon for me. <laughs> You're welcome. Sometimes I get a little, uh, you know, look, squirrel, right? <laughs> a little distracted. <laughs> Specifically, though, the Judaizers were demanding circumcision, emphasizing the flesh, promoting salvation by human achievement. 
And so Paul is saying, let me show you where that leads. Again, in verses 19 through 21, he says, now the works, let me say, okay, how do I go back on this crazy thing? Thank you. <laughs> now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. What a way to live. I want you to notice that when you look at that list, they're all over the place. They're scattered, they're chaotic, they're self-centered, they're destructive, and they are born of the fallen nature. So this behavior comes natural for man. And if you don't believe that, then uh, just take a visit to the local prison, local jailhouse, local courthouse, take a visit to one of the nightclubs at about 1.45 in the morning on a Sunday morning, this is the natural behavior of fallen man. So Paul begins this list, the works of the flesh, with these words. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And as Solomon has said, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. When it comes to immorality, nothing has changed. Modern society is obsessed with sex. Sex is used to sell everything from toothpaste to automobiles. In the name of the 1960s sexual revolution, an entire culture is now enslaved to its baser instincts. That's not a revolution, that's bondage. That's slavery. Being classy was once considered a virtue, but now vulgarity is the common trait of our culture. Paul continues, works of the flesh with idolatry and sorcery. Today, idolatry continues to be a big problem in our society. In America, the more popular idols include pleasure, entertainment, wealth, sexual promiscuity, power, prestige, beauty. These are the kinds of works of the flesh that Paul warns about. They violate the first commandment of God by replacing God on the throne of the heart. And then he continues with this word sorcery, which we also discovered from the Greek word pharmakeia. It means drugs. It's the word that we get pharmacy from. Drugs not being used for a healthy and helpful purpose, but drugs being used for an illicit and sinister purpose. And specifically, quite oftentimes, it involves a connection with the occult and occult practices. But even closer to this context, it had to do with abortifacient drugs. Abortifacient drugs. Drugs that produce abortion. Drugs that kill an unborn baby in the womb. And this is what they were used for. They would engage in idolatry, and while they were worshiping in their pagan temples, there were temple prostitutes, they would become pregnant, they would take abortifacient drugs and offer the child as a sacrifice to the idol. Nothing has changed. 
The only difference is today that idol, that idol is not referred to by a Greek name. It's referred to as a sexual revolution. But it is an idol nonetheless. Today, illicit drugs continue to be a scourge on our society. In 2015, more than 50,000 people died of a drug overdose. Not to mention the thousands and thousands that are killed by abortifacient drugs in the womb. Sorcery, the ancient use of drugs for sinister and, per and evil purposes, is alive and well today. So Paul continues with sins of animosity, enmity, strife, and jealousy. Enmity or hatred, the breakdown of human relationships. Specific forms, Paul will talk about discord nine different times throughout his epistles. It was destroying church unity in the first century. He talks about jealousy and covetousness, talks about strife and fits of rage. And then Paul continues with rivalries and dissensions and divisions. Rivalries, the concept there embodying selfish ambitions leading to dissensions and leading to divisions. These dissensions, these divisions lead to backbiting, gossip, slander, spreading rumor, failing to give your brother, failing to give your sister the benefit of the doubt. In Proverbs 6, it tells us that there are, or in the, in the book of Proverbs, it tells us there are six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination unto him. And in that list, he includes dangerous, sinful behavior such as prideful arrogance, what it leads to, murder, lying. But in that list of the most grievous sins, according to the heart of God, it says, one who sows discord among brothers. It is a powerful evil that God says, this I hate, yes, this is an abomination unto me. And then Paul rounds out the list with sins of intemperance, drunkenness, and orgies. In America, one in eight adults struggles with alcohol abuse. And of course, when they are drunk, many people engage in sexual promiscuity, orgy behavior, carousing, wild parties, leading to marital infidelity and spousal abuse and child abuse. There's much moral chaos that leads to the erosion of the family that has its foundation in the abuse of alcohol. The abuse of alcohol. So Paul lays out this long and putrid list of sinful, destructive behaviors. These are works of the flesh. They encompass the behaviors of the Judaizers, but they go well beyond them. And in stark contrast now, he begins to list the fruit of the Spirit. And notice the contrast begins with the fact that these manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit are orderly, they are supernatural, they are God-centered, and they are singular. It is not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. A singular fruit that is manifested in several graces, several beautiful expressions of the Holy Spirit's presence in a person's life. So they're beautiful, they're harmonious and balanced, and they correspond perfectly with the Spirit-filled life. It's amazing. 
Again, we do not produce the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. He produces His fruit in our life. Our part is to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk in obedience to the Spirit, to refrain from quenching or from grieving the Spirit of God. Well, like the list of the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a comprehensive list of all the ways that the Holy Spirit manifests His presence in our lives. But these are primary expressions of that grace that demonstrates the Holy Spirit's work in us. And he offers it here in three sets of three. The first, love, joy, and peace. Love, joy, and peace. And we could call these habits of the Christian's mind. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, these are habits of the Christian's mind. Habits of the Christian's mind. The first is love, sometimes called agape. More, per, more correctly, it's agape. Love. It is the source and the fountain of the other graces. In fact, it's the foundation of election, the foundation of creation, the foundation of the incarnation, the foundation of salvation itself. For without God's love, this world would be done and gone. It is the love of God that is foundational in Paul's teaching. The gospel is contingent on the love of God. Our salvation, our sanctification, these are contingent upon the love of God. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is contingent upon the love of God. This is why Paul said back in chapter 2, I live by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved me and gave himself for me. So the love of God is a critical component in the fruit of the Spirit. His love enables us to live in a state of love toward Him and love toward others. Paul said, love seeks not its own. When believers love one another, their witness is strengthened. When believers fail to love each other, their witness is weakened. Love. And then joy. And of course, the source of our joy is God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice, Paul said. The kingdom of God is not righteousness, or is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Right? Not a matter of eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the word joy and the word grace have the same Greek root. We receive salvation by the grace of God, and then we walk in joy as the normal expression of grace in our lives. And that's a totally different kind of joy than any so-called joy that those in the world would experience. You see, the world's concept of joy is situational. It always has to do with what is going on in your life. It's determined by the circumstances, qualified by the situation. But the believer's joy is experienced in the midst of suffering. Remember Paul and Silas worshiping in prison? They had the joy of the Lord. Stephen forgiving his assailants even as he was dying the death of a martyr. That's the joy of the Lord. A joy that is marked by a celebration of new life in Christ. A joy that looks forward to the day when King Jesus will split the eastern sky and come back and claim His own. 
For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the nations and they that dwell therein. They belong to Him. Believe it or not. And one day He will return. And that is a a wonderful thought that causes the joy within us to brim over. Because we know this is not all there is. You're in basic training. You're in boot camp. Listen, if you live to be 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, and then you depart from this life to live in the presence of the King for eternity, where do you think the significance is? This life, it's just a brief puff of steam coming out of a tea kettle. It's here, and then it's gone. But eternity never ends. So as significant as this life is, It pales in comparison with the eternity that awaits us. Can you say amen? Love, joy, peace. Paul rounds out this first set of descriptions with peace. And it's not simply the absence of war or conflict or violence. It embodies the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom. A thought of living in a state of being whole of wholeness, of integrity, of complete well-being, that we are in righteous relationship with God and therefore we can be in right relationship with others. Now we have peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that peace with God causes us to have the peace of God, a peace that transcends our understanding. How many of you have experienced that in your life? Going through a circumstance where the the rug is just jerked out from under you and your life goes tumbling. And somehow in the midst of it all, after the tears and after the initial shock, you're baffled with this indescribable peace. And you're just like, well, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but what I know who holds tomorrow. Peace with God producing a peace of God. So as Christians receive the peace of God, we are now called to be peacemakers. It's one of our duties. We are called to be peacemakers, to be peacemakers, both within the church and within the community. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. There was a Christian missionary who was down in Colombia. And one of his assignments while he was there was to set up a prison ministry at one of the most difficult prisons in Colombia. The prison was named Bella Vista. And while they were there, at another prison across Colombia, a riot broke out. And the inmates took control. It was an 11-day standoff. Three guards were killed. And because of the corruption throughout that whole penal system, word had been sent to Bella Vista, we have taken over, you take control, to their fellow inmates. But something very interesting happened. Rather than rebelling as their counterparts had in this other prison, the inmates at Bella Vista said, we will not seize control from the guards. A time later, there was a reporter there that was doing a story, and she asked the the head 
of that inmate uh, association, if you will. Why did you refuse to take over? And he responded, we want peace. The journalist said, well, why? And he said, God has control of Bella Vista. You see, they had experienced a revival at Bella Vista sometime sooner. And many of the inmates had given their lives to the Lord and were being discipled. And so they saw when they had the opportunity to go free in the natural, they weren't interested because they were already set free in the Spirit. Friends, there are people that are walking around us every day in this community that are free physically, but are more captive in chains of bondage than Christians who have given their lives to the Lord and now find themselves incarcerated at state prisons. For who the Son sets free is free indeed. And you may walk as a free man, but if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are enslaved to sin. You're living as a slave. Leading others to Christ, discipling them, fulfilling the Great Commission, even behind the prison doors. God has a mission for us to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be examples of peacemakers who are called the sons of God, for we are giving the message of one who is called the Prince of Peace. And this old sin-battered world will never know peace until the Prince of Peace fully establishes his, his rule and reign. Can you say amen? Paul continues with the second set, patience, kindness, goodness. You could call these the social relationships, the social relationships. Patience. Patience is only possible when we keep everything in perspective. Would you agree with me? That sometimes things happen in life and it's very difficult to keep things in perspective. But if you're going to experience patience in your life, you have to keep things in perspective. It's one of the reasons why I so appreciate my wife. We'll go through various difficulties in life and we'll take turns helping each other keep things in the right perspective. Because it's just too easy for things to go askew in this life. And it's certainly impossible to be a person of patience unless you break with the culture. What do you mean? Well, think about it. In our culture, there is a sense of pride if you are easily offended. Have you noticed that? There are people in our culture that go around trying to decorate themselves with bigger and more grand ribbons of, I'm easily offended. It's like they have these huge crowns on their head that are given to them for being offended. And the whole mission in life is to see who can be more offended than the next person. Have you noticed that? It's ridiculous. But not only is it ridiculous, it is not a sign of virtue. It's not certainly a sign of sophistication. It is a sign, listen to me, it is a sign of spiritual immaturity. Spiritual immaturity. Follow my reasoning. Spiritual immaturity corresponds with patient endurance. It is evidenced by long-suffering and forbearance. It is seen in the capacity to tolerate other people even when you are treated poorly. 
And it is a preeminent characteristic of God. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Great patience and instruction. Great patience and instruction. Not, I'm easily offended. I find it rather oxymoronic that we live in a culture that prides itself on tolerance while at the same time showing the most intolerance towards Christians. It's amazing. And you wouldn't even have such a culture where other religious uh, forms of expression could even be engaged in had it not been for the Judeo-Christian roots of our nation. Go visit the countries of this world that are led by radical Muslims. Ladies, get used to wearing burqas because that's what you'll face if that ever happens here. A stripping away of personal expression of freedom. The freedoms that we enjoy are freedoms that are related to our belief in the Bible, in Judeo-Christian values. And certainly, a Judeo-Christian value is great patience, especially towards those who treat us poorly. When you are patient in the face of such opposition, that's the light of Jesus Christ shining through. Anybody can pick up stones and throw them. Anybody can do that. That's just spiritual immaturity. But spiritual maturity says, no, my heavenly Father requires more of me than that. And so I will yield to the Spirit and allow Him to give me the long-suffering and the great patience that I need. And how many of you would agree in our culture you need a lot of it? <laughs> you need a lot of patience. Kindness. And this is not mere sentimentality, but it, it's, it's an active kindness in the face of opposition and difficulty. Probably the greatest example Jesus spoke of was the Good Samaritan, right? This guy's going down the road, this Good Samaritan, and he sees a fellow citizen who's been robbed and beaten, left for dead, binds the man's wounds, lays him on his donkey, carries him to the inn, underwrites his recuperation, paid for his care. In the body of Christ, kindness is expressed through loving acts of charity, warm affection towards one another, concern for each other, kindness. And then goodness, it's just like Paul ramps it up a little bit more. Goodness, it's extravagant generosity. It's going the extra mile for a person, which in fact were the words of the Lord. He said, whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And that was based on a cultural understanding at that time, where in Rome, there was mandated to every citizen of Rome that if a soldier compelled you to carry his pack, carry his materials, his weapons, whatever he had, to carry it, that it was your obligation as a Roman citizen to stop what you were doing and to carry that trooper's gear for a mile. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and said, if that happens to you, don't carry it one, carry it two. 
carry it too. Go the extra mile. The third set, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We could call these principles of Christian conduct. And so he begins with faithfulness. Being true, being trustworthy. Being like the one whom is called faithful and true. Being reliable in one's dealings with others. 2 Timothy 2 and 2 tells us, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen, friends, more than success, faithfulness is the mark of effective ministry. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Are you faithful to the Word of God? Are you faithful to teach the gospel? Are you faithful to share the gospel with others? Faithfulness. One of the greatest missionaries, William Carey, after serving eight years in India, had very, very few visible results. Finally, in a moment of just feeling despondent, Carey sat down and he wrote a friend, John Williams. This is what he said. Pray for us that we may be faithful to the end. He was ready to throw in the towel. Didn't see much result. Didn't see any outstanding success. Heard the stories coming from others of the great numbers that were being saved and lives that were being transformed. Orphanages that were being started. Magnificent hospitals that were being run in the name of Jesus. Saw precious little for his time ready to throw in the towel. But he realized that success in the eyes of heaven is determined by faithfulness. Being faithful. Pray for us that we may be faithful to the end. For you see, faithfulness is the mark of effective ministry. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Having a submissible Submissive, teachable spirit toward God. A submissive, teachable spirit towards God. James 3 and 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his good deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. So we see that it expresses genuine humility and consideration toward other people. Now in our culture, you would be called a pushover. You'd be called wimpy. But it's actually the opposite of that. Gentleness in the biblical sense is the opposite of being weak. It's the opposite of being a wimp. It's reflected in strength under control. Strength harnessed in loving control and consideration of others. It's the man who receives the slap on his face, but does not return the slap to the little five-foot woman who just, in a moment of rage, slapped him. But instead, catches her hand and says, we're not going to behave that way. That's being gentle. That is having strength under control. I've got a friend who battles to keep his weight at about 284 pounds, He's six foot four, and he's built like an NFL linebacker. He's huge. He's huge. 
He's the kind of guy that can just walk into a room and immediately demand respect by his size. We, I have another friend similar to that here today. <laughs> Both of these guys are very similar in that you forget how tall they are until they stand up. You know why? Because they're gentle. They're gentle. They're gentlemen. What a wonderful display of God's character. Because God has absolute control over every single solitary breath that we take. And yet, because he's gentle towards us, he'll allow the vilest of sinners to curse him throughout their lives. But he gives grace because he's gentle towards us. Let us too be gentle towards others. Gentleness, an attribute of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, the prophet is speaking of God and how God is manifested through the Messiah in his dealings with us. He says in verse 11, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a beautiful picture of God. But do you know what makes it even more compelling? Is that in the verse just prior to this, God is described as the sovereign of the universe in his power and majesty. Described in terms that are beyond our ability to fully articulate. The power that puts the planets in orbit. Well, you say, I'm not sure there is a God. I think evolution has it right. Oh, really? When was the last time you picked up a fifth grade biology textbook and tried to believe that nonsense? Seriously, folks. This week I had the opportunity to spend a couple of hours just refreshing my own memory on the constitution of the human brain and how infinitely complex the human brain is. It is a wonder of creation. When the psalmist said, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, friends, that's an understatement. That is an understatement. The power of the chemical electro uh, reactions that take place in your brain. Hundreds of thousands of them throughout the day. Do you know that you're born with over a billion neurons? That you know that, the, that your neurons are outnumbered by glial cells or glial cells 10 to 1? They number, the neuron synapses number in the trillions in your brain. We, with faulting understanding, describe what we observe. But when it comes to the human brain alone, the most sophisticated computers on the planet don't even make the cut of a child's plaything when compared to the human brain. And get this, it's organic. It's organic and develops from DNA, which is highly encoded information that is resident in every one of its cells. It takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to say, I don't understand it all, but there is a God in heaven, a super intelligence 
that designs all things according to His purposes and plans. That God, described in terms of august majesty and power, the prophet goes on to to describe in the most tender terms possible. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. (laughs) He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Aren't you glad for the gentleness of God, for the grace of God, for the love of God? We're so quick to write off our fellow man, aren't we? Aren't you glad God isn't so quick to write us off? He loves us and is long-suffering toward us. The sovereign of the universe is also the shepherd who cares for his sheep. And then self-control. Mastery over one's desires and appetites. Paul talks about self-control with regards to sexual purity in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But self-control, of course, extends beyond sexual purity to touch every aspect of our lives. Living a discipled life living a disciplined life made possible through this fruit of the Spirit called self-control. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses the illustrations of the athlete, how they undergo strict training to compete, like a boxer or like a runner. But listen, a Christian who lacks self-control is like a runner meandering from side to side and then wondering why they never are able to finish the race. Or it's like a boxer who is punching the air but is never able to land a blow. Paul begins this section with a straightforward command. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And then he gives this striking contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And then he offers a sobering consequence for those who refuse to walk by the Spirit. A sobering consequence. You see, immediately following the list of the work of, of the flesh, the works of the flesh, in verse 21 he says, I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Read that with me. I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, Paul is looking forward to the personal, visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you are also looking forward to that? When King Jesus returns. It's the blessed hope of the Christian. But it is also an event of great dread to those who are outside Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 10 verse 42 tells us that Jesus is coming to judge both the living and the dead. Paul has just listed this catalog of sinful behavior. And then he says those who live such lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. Someone says, well, what about the Christian? I mean, believers are saved, but we're certainly not perfect. But notice Paul says, those who practice such things. Those who practice such things. Those who habitually indulge 
in those kinds of lives. Those who habitually indulge in lives that are immoral, who habitually indulge in lives that are idolatrous, who habitually indulge in lives that are intemperate, these will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. Now, earlier this month, Hugh Hefner died at 91 years old, the founder of the Playboy Empire. He made millions and millions and millions of dollars exploiting women and enslaving people in chains of pornography. At 91 years old, at 91 years old, he lived like an immature, childish adolescent who had just discovered his hormones. 91 years old. If ever there was a life ill-spent, that is a life ill-spent. Hugh Hefner was quoted as saying, Sex is a biological necessity. Find yourself a girl who's like-minded and let yourself go. It's no different than eating and drinking. No different than eating and drinking. Not something that is sacred, created by God to be shared by a husband and wife. No different than eating and drinking. You can get a group of people together to eat and drink. You can get a group of people together to do whatever you want. That was his philosophy. Hugh Hefner says, it's just biology. It's no different than eating and drinking. But the Bible says those who live such lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God of God. At the end of the day, it makes absolutely no difference what Hugh Hefner thinks, but it makes an eternal difference what the King of Glory says, King Jesus. For the Bible tells us very clearly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's a day coming when Mohammed will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a day coming when Buddha will bow before King Jesus. There's a day coming when Herr Krishna will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. When Adolf Hitler will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. When every person who has ever been conceived will acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For he and he alone is the author and giver of life and the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus Christ, God made man. Second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him gave He the power to become the sons of God. You see, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? 
The works of the flesh are the dreadful evidence of a life that is not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. They speak of a lifestyle that is shunned by God and a life that has shunned the Savior. They speak of a lifestyle that has closed the door of paradise. But thankfully, God has given us the key to his kingdom. Amen? And it is a sufficient key, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Over in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, when people are saved, they receive the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 3 and 16 tells us you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you. Dwells in us. So he empowers us to live above the power of habituated sin. As we recognize our dependence on the Spirit, we rest in the Spirit. And then we find ourselves keeping in step with the Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit. Living a Spirit-filled life. I find it rather amazing and sad and a bit ironic that 30 some years ago, one of the leading proponents of Pentecostal theology who believed that being filled with the Spirit meant that you spoke in tongues was found to be living a sinful, duplicitous life. Now, I don't say that to cast aspersions, not at all. Like Jerry Falwell said, there but for the grace of God go I. But I say that to underscore the faulty thinking that if being spirit-filled is about emotional ecstatic experiences and utterances, wouldn't we expect the leading proponent of that experience to be living a sanctified and holy life? Wouldn't we? But when we see gross misconduct, then we, we don't stand in critical judgment and say somehow we're better than that. Not at all. What we say is we've come to recognize that being spirit-filled is about daily obedience to the Word of God. That that dependency on the Spirit in the practical manner of knowing and yielding to His Spirit by knowing and yielding to His Word, not in the power of my flesh or my efforts, but simply by recognizing my dependency on Him, then He enables me to live above habituated sin to the degree that I'm recognizing my dependency on Him. That's Spirit-filled living keeping in step with the Spirit. He dwells in us. 
First Peter 2 and 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as Christians, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, pecu a peculiar people. In other words, we are saved to stand out. Saved to stand out. And that doesn't come by being odd. It comes by endeavoring to live a holy life. And in a culture that laughs at that, that makes you wholly odd. <laughs> wholly other, wholly peculiar. But isn't that what we want? Because we live to satisfy and to please an audience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's not about trying to please the world. Not about trying to look like the world or somehow become, quote, relevant in order to reach people. Now certainly Paul said, I became all things to all men, that in order by all means I might reach some. I understand that. But listen, some churches in the, in the name of relevance have become irrelevant. Now they just blend into the culture. And I'm one of these persons who believes that when the Holy Spirit is drawing someone and they make it through a church door, they're looking for something different. They're looking for something they can't get out there. And they'll find that when they find a people that are peculiar, a people that are different, because they stand up for the gospel, saved to stand, and by standing, to stand out. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for how practical and truly relevant it is. That your, world is, your word is timeless and timely. Your word is always the last word. Your, your word is always the most relevant word. Help us to understand and apply your word to our lives. Help us to be obedient to your word and to yield to your spirit, not to quench or grieve your spirit. But help us daily to recognize our utter dependence upon your spirit. And in so doing, to yield to your spirit and to keep in step with your spirit, thereby living a spirit-filled life. So, Father, we cherish your word and ask that you would help us to esteem it above all things. And now today, Lord, as we give back to you a portion of that which you've blessed us with, we ask that you would take these offerings and use them for the glory of your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give to the Lord's work.